You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to daily podcast on all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton. I'm a minor league play-by-play broadcaster, longtime Marlins writer, and a prospect writer and analyst. And in today's episode, we are going to preview a little bit of this Marlins series coming up against the Braves, talk about some of the roster situations that were created by Sunday, yesterday's disaster of trying to play that baseball game between the Mets and the Marlins. I have no idea why they tried to play that game. The weather was pretty obviously going to be terrible. They got about one batter in and then everything just fell apart. It was raining too hard. Stroman couldn't even reach home plate because the ground was so slippery and wet. He couldn't grip the ball. It made no sense. And they never got back out there. The Marlins played it right. They went out there with John Curtis, or he didn't even throw, but he warmed up in the bullpen. John Curtis was going to be the guy that was going to start, which is a bullpen arm. So you don't have to throw off your rotation. And they didn't have to do that. Whereas the Mets, they're going to have to go through the rotation again now because Stroman warmed up, got ready to go through a few pitches in a game setting. So that's another five days without actually starting for Marcus Stroman. I know he was not happy about them trying to play that ball game. The Marlins don't play yesterday. It's not, it's it's kind of a day off. When people are saying like, okay, yeah, it's a day off, it is in some ways. But a day off is like you sleep in, you relax, you go do your own thing. Some guys may grind and work out really hard, but the whole point of an off day is it's your prerogative. The thing is, with yesterday, it wasn't really an off day because you have to get to the park early, you have to warm up, get ready to go with the mindset that you are playing, and basically get ready to take the field and take the field. So you do all of that, like four hours, five hours leading into the ball game. You don't really have that mental day off as well. And, you know, I'm sure the Marlins are less taxed than they would have been if they played nine innings, don't get me wrong, but it's not like a full off day. And it was just kind of weird to even bother trying and then have them waiting around for two hours as if the weather was going to somehow clear up. The other part of the equation is that the Marlins had to make some roster moves in order to get pitching up to potentially toss in that ball game because the Marlins needed an arm and they sent down Lewis Brinson and that was Lewis Brinson's last option over to the alternate training site. So now he has no options remaining and the Marlins are going to have to make a tough decision with him now and they're kind of forced in their hand here. The thing with Brinson though at this point is he only had six plate appearances so far this season. He's clearly not really in any kind of role. There's not really a role carved out for him at this point with this team and it makes sense. And I had said that before the season that I thought that him and Magnara Sierra were redundant. And it seems like that's exactly the case. And the Marlins are erring on the side of Sierra that he is more interesting for them because he's more of a threat to bunt. He's a lefty bat and he's a little bit more or a lot more consistent making contact while he doesn't offer the power. He puts the bat on the ball in most pinch hit situations. You just want someone to put the ball in play and wreak havoc on the bases. It's exactly what Magnara Sierra can do. I mean, if you want somebody with two outs, bottom of the ninth, no 
nobody on and you're down one to hopefully run into one, then maybe Brinson's your guy. But it's not like Brinson makes frequent enough contact to really be able to count on that. I think the Marlins are clearly leaning towards Magnara Sierra. And again, having both of those guys on the same team, on the same bench, seems a bit redundant because they both serve the same purpose, whereas Sierra makes more contact and is a better base dealer. So the Marlins seem to be more comfortable with Sierra. Now they use their last option on Brinson, which is unfortunate because they wouldn't have done that if they knew they weren't playing on Sunday. They wouldn't have had to bring in Castano, who now doesn't need to throw until the 16th against the Giants. So they wouldn't have had to make this decision for like four games. So it is a pretty wild situation, and it was unfortunate. But if this was like Monte Harrison, it would be a different story. It would be much more frustrating because Monte Harrison still has a a little bit more time and you're not saying, oh, he's done. He's not going to figure it out. Whereas for Brinson at this point, I don't think anybody or very few people are holding out hope that Lewis Brinson's going to put it together. So the Marlins probably aren't losing sleep over losing this last option for Brinson, though it is a bit inconvenient. And at this point, they might need to just consider finding a trade partner for him and seeing if there's got to be a team out there. I, I would be shocked if there isn't a team out there that is willing to take Brinson on for a lottery ticket, you know, similar to the Jordan Yamamoto deal, maybe a little bit better of a lottery ticket. Maybe you can get a Dioel Burgos type and you just swap those players out and he gets a change of scenery. Maybe he'll figure it out. Maybe not. But if I'm like the Pirates, for example, where my major league team is a joke, my system is not that great and there's not that many outfielders in my system, why not give up a lottery ticket in the lower levels for somebody that can now go straight to your big league team? It's not like you're winning. Your team's already terrible. I think they're going to be one of the worst teams in baseball history by the end of the year, especially now with Brian Hayes, unfortunately, injured. If you're the Pirates, why not just take a flyer on Brinson still, hope that you can get something out of him and turn him into at least a platoon player or a regular in the outfield And now you give yourself a chance of potentially picking up a piece for essentially nothing. And while it's very unlikely that he figures it out with the Pirates, if I'm the Pirates where there's just not a lot of hope and the system's not looking that great right now, why not just take that flyer? I would I would do it in two seconds if I were them. And the Marlins, at this point, the roster spot is not really worth it anymore. You want to hold out on Brinson, but at this point, you got to forget where he came from, the fact that it's part of the Yelich trade and holding on to the Yelich trade. I'm sure the Marlins front office would never admit to that, and they're probably saying he's just too good of a talent in the minor leagues and too physically gifted to just totally give up on him. But we've gotten to the point here where for the Marlins, it just doesn't make sense, and that roster spot would be better used in a different way for a different player. Decisions to be made, and I think they'll be made relatively soon. So let's preview this Brave series a little bit, but before I get to that, I also wanted to talk about the last win where the Marlins beat Jacob deGrom on Saturday, which was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. It was so much fun to watch. And Trevor Rogers, as I said, I guess I was one start late on Rogers because I said he was going to deal in his first start. And I thought he really settled in nicely. And I'd said that before, right, where he had the jitters in that first inning, pitching in front of his family for the first time in a while, and then clearly shake the jitters off after he got out of that inning with some damage done. I believe it was three runs he gave up, but then settled in the rest of the way and turned in five really solid innings. And that was very telling for me with the composure of Trevor Rogers. A lot of young pitchers, he's still only 23 years old, would fall apart there. For a point in time in that inning, I thought that Rogers may not find the strike zone. 
that he might get pulled out without getting anybody else out. It really seemed that bad for a moment, but he totally settled in and kept his team in the ball game. just the Marlins couldn't score. Rodgers built on that with his next outing and just was dazzling. Six innings, he punched out 10. He only walked a pair and gave up no runs. I mean, it was just such a phenomenal performance from him, probably the best performance I've ever seen from him, and that's a little bit of a taste of what we can see if his command is working. I just dove deep into Trevor Rogers on my Locked On MLB Prospects podcast, and a lot of it's probably some stuff that I have said in the past on this podcast, but I wanted to cut to that real quick so you could hear a little bit more of my specific analysis on Trevor Rogers. So here's a quick clip from my last episode of Locked On MLB Prospects. At first, I was thinking more back end of the rotation type with the ceiling of maybe a three, like best case scenario. Now I'm looking at a guy who's got legitimately number two kind of stuff. And that's really impressive for a 23-year-old lefty. So he goes six innings, three hits, no runs, two walks, 10 Ks against the Mets and really matches Jacob deGrom. I know deGrom punched out 14, but deGrom also gave up a home run to Jazz Chisholm, who I'm going to talk about next as part of this Marlins rookie duo that's been really good good. Rodgers, the big thing for him is the command. Can he stay around the strike zone? If he is losing the command on the fastball a little bit, then he starts to get into trouble. And that's the only thing that's been holding him back at this point. He had a slow start to his first outing this year, but it was his first time pitching in the major leagues in front of his family. And you could just tell he was super jittery and just way too amped. And he walked three batters in the first inning, then settled in and turned in a decent start. In his last outing, he just dominated with the fastball. And all of a sudden, this fastball has turned into one of the best left-handed heaters that I've seen among a young pitcher in the game. And it's it's up there. I mean, obviously, it's not Garrett Crochet level, but it's pretty darn good. I would say that it's better than Tarek Skubal's. And that's the interesting thing is I think he's a bit similar to Skubal in terms of how they like to use their pitches. But the thing is, Rodgers has a much more reliable fastball and better command of his secondaries than Skubal does. And that's why I think Rodgers is almost the better version of Tarek Skubal. I was very nervous on Skubal as a guy that's more 93 miles an hour that doesn't locate the secondaries as well and just doesn't quite have that length that Rodgers has because that's a big reason why Rodgers is so difficult to pick up. He was up to 98 in his last outing and that's a big uptick in his stuff. He used to be more 92 to 94 range. That's been a big help for him as well. He went over 96 so he hit 97 or like 96.5 or above 15 times in his last outing Rodgers and that helped him to 19 swings and misses total but the most important number and this is a number or a statistic that is really important to me now and that I watch really closely especially on young pitchers that like to rely on the fastball and it's called strike and whiff rate which is exactly what it sounds like it's how many called strikes and whiffs what percentage of your pitches are called strikes and whiffs the league average is 28 percent and just on the fastball alone Trevor Rogers was at 49% in his last outing. And that is just insane if you can set the tone with a fastball like that. And part of the reason why the fastball is so good is, of course, that it's ticked up to the mid to upper 90s now. The fact that he has this insane reach where the ball feels like it's getting in on you really quickly. He whips that arm around. But also, it is well above average in the 
spin rate area where it's more than 2400 rpms he also is able to locate it on both sides of the plate when he's going well and then he has a really good change up that just makes that pitch play up even more he changed the grip on his slider the slider is an even better pitch for him especially against lefties he goes fastball slider against lefties and it's a miserable at bat because every fastball looks like it's coming at your front hip and then the slider is going to make you bail out a little bit it's hard to stay that keep that front side closed on the slider after you're seeing 96 97 painted on the inside corner from like three quarters with the crazy reach that Rodgers has the best way I can describe it is just lefties look uncomfortable and it's not like righties are seeing a beach ball either because he is able to tunnel that change up really well and last year the changeup was great to righties they hit just 182 against that pitch and we're seeing more of the same this year Rodgers is legit he's going to be a solid middle of the rotation arm that will rack up strikeouts as a floor I really think that's his floor at this point the only thing that's holding him back from being a number two type is the command can he find consistent enough command he showed it last start and I think if that is starting to come together more for him then he is going to be scary if you haven't had the chance to watch Trevor Rogers pitch, definitely tune in next time he throws and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about on this guy. Just another really special start from Trevor Rogers. And as long as he's attacking hitters, he is realizing now that he can attack them with that fastball a bit more than most can and that he has reliable enough secondary stuff. He's even comfortable throwing the changeup to lefties. If you enjoyed that snippet right there too, I dive into Jazz Chisholm and a few other minor leaguers in that episode where I think if you like prospects in general, you will really enjoy my Locked On MLB Prospects podcast as well. But today I used the platform in today's episode to be able to uh, let the world know a little bit about what the Marlins have cooking here down in Miami. But I talk about all 30 teams and it's a ton of fun. So I'm going to dive back into Jazz Chisholm, his home run off of Jacob deGrom, and some of the things he said afterward that I thought were very funny and then we will preview this big series against the Braves ahead with the Marlins actually coming off of a win here and a little bit of positive momentum and make their way into a very favorable pitching matchup to start off the series but we remember what happened last time I said that so maybe we want unfavorable pitching matchups I I don't know (laughs) so with the way things have looked for the Marlins right now you beat DeGrom you lose to Danielle Ponce de Leon and John Gant I mean who knows with this team sometimes I will talk about that regardless and give my thoughts first a reminder that this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag betonline is the most trusted online betting site for all of us here at the Locked On Network It's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. Football might be over, but we've got NBA, NHL, and obviously Major League Baseball in full swing right now. But BetOnline covers everything from awards to TV shows, reality TV, and everything in between. They have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. If you go over to the website right now and use a promo code LOCKEDON, that's one word, LOCKEDON, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your initial deposit that is the best offer any of our advertisers are giving any of our listeners right now 50% welcome bonus on your initial deposit with the promo code locked on bet online your online sportsbook experts so let's talk some jazz and then let's preview this series 
Jazz is so fun to watch, obviously, um, and he was the spark plug again for this team. The Marlins were looking pretty insane in a bad way at the plate against DeGrom, but it was Jacob DeGrom, and that's fine. I mean, like people that were getting a little bit uh, uneasy early in that game, like, oh, here's the offense again. Generally, I'll agree. Like, the offense has been really bad, but when you're facing Jacob DeGrom, you kind of got to look at it as an isolated day. You can't really compound any of your struggles or anything else uh, from earlier in the season or from earlier in the week into a matchup with DeGrom because it's just not fair. Like, he's always going to be difficult to hit. He was great. He struck out 14. It was a little bit alarming how comfortable he was with the fastball, too. He was going one heater, two heater, three heater, see ya. Especially the guys like Brian Anderson, where it was just, and, and Garrett Cooper. Garrett Cooper blatantly got gassed up, too, where it was just like he might as well have done the glove gesture, you know, flicking it upwards like they do in warm ups, letting him know the fastball was coming and zipping it by him. And that was the thing. So I was just sitting there watching and I'm thinking, please, somebody just cheat for that fastball. And normally I don't like that, right? Like you don't want to be caught cheating because that's where you end up taking really bad swings, getting caught on your front foot, expanding the zone and all of that stuff. But when you have someone like Jacob deGrom, who at that point was throwing probably 70% fastballs and elevated fastballs, then you got to sell out for it, especially because he has a freak changeup that you're probably not even going to hit if he tells you it's coming too. And if you connect with that fastball, that's definitely his most hittable pitch a lot of the time. And if you just touch it, if you just barrel it, it will go. And that's exactly what Jazz Chisholm did. He watched DeGrom triple up on the fastball, quadruple up on the fastball against the guys ahead of him. And even with two strikes, just going to the elevated fastball. And after Jazz was super late, on the second strike where he fouled it off just barely, he was ready to go for the fastball on that two-strike pitch, got the barrel out on it, and put it in the upper deck 402 feet on a 100-mile-per-hour fastball because that's all he needs to do. And that's what I've always been saying with Jazz. I mean, I know it's a little bit different when it's 100 and elevated, but in general, Jazz has enough raw bat speed where he doesn't need to swing out of his shoes every single time to hit a home run. And a 430-foot home run and a 380-foot home run, they count the same. And that's why I was hoping for Jazz to be more barrel-oriented, and that's exactly what he has been. It's been so fun to watch and watch him be more controlled with his swing. And as he's been more controlled with his swing, he's just been making way more quality contact and also has been better with two strikes. It makes sense that Jazz throughout his professional career, now that we get to see his personality a bit more, that maybe at times he'd try to do too much at the plate. It makes sense now that we see how he is. And that's a good thing. You want that energy. You want that passion. You want the desire to win. But you could see it earlier where he wanted every single thing to be a home run. Now when we look at the numbers, and it's a small sample size, but overall, they are really encouraging. He's in the 83rd percentile on chase rate, which is been really telling. He's been laying off of a lot of borderline pitches, a lot of breaking balls down, and that's been something that he didn't do as much before. He was just almost committing to swinging before the ball was even thrown. Also, with that more controlled and contact-oriented swing, which, get don't get me wrong, like he's still doing damage. He still has a natural uppercut and ridiculous bat speed that he's going to hit plenty of home runs. He just doesn't need to try to hit them every single time. But now that he's more calculated and controlled and comfortable going to the opposite field a higher percent of the time than he has at any other level, it might even out a little bit, but that's a good sign to start too. I mean, the guy's going oppo, he's not chasing as much, and he's barreling balls up more. 78 
98th percentile in barrel percentage is somewhere where he's never even been close to that. And we're seeing it where with two strikes especially, he shortens up, just tries to drive the ball back up the middle the other way. He'll react inside because his hands are quick enough. And we're just seeing the Jazz Chisholm we always wanted to see. And I really believe that once he realized how much he can impact the game on the bases, he focused more so on just being able to get on base, period, instead of just trying to change the world with that one swing. The other thing that has been really telling as well is that he matched his walk total from last year at the big league level in barely more than a third of the at-bats. So he is walking way more than he was in his first stint in the big leagues, and it all ties together. So the one thing I wanted to talk about with Jazz, though, is the confidence is never going to be lacking, and I love that about him. I love that the confidence is there and he is not intimidated by anybody, but there's still a level of respect I feel like you should have for somebody like Jacob deGrom, who is one of the best pitchers of the modern era. I just think it's it's a tough look to right after a game where you homer off of him to just say, yeah, the fastball looks a bit light. And maybe he meant it in relation to the fact that it has more of a, of a upward feeling to it, whereas Jordan Hicks is more of a heavy sinker, but those are two totally different pitches, right? Like he's a high spin guy that gets a lot of swings and misses because the fastball kind of has that perceived rising action I always talk about with the high spin rates, whereas Jordan Hicks is like a heavy sinker guy that just bizarrely throws 102 while throwing sinkers. It's weird. But that's just two totally different guys, right? And like two totally different caliber of careers. I think Jordan Hicks could be pretty good. He's never going to be even in the same stratosphere as Jacob deGrom. And the other thing too with that is that Jazz came out and said after after he hit that ball that uh, he was just looking for something, breaking ball potentially, and reacted to the fastball up. And again, this is all in good fun because I absolutely love Jazz Chisholm. But like, this is just something that I wanted to comment on because if you talk to any baseball player, they're gonna they're gonna call bullshit on that. Like, absolutely are going to call bullshit on that. There is no way that guy was sitting breaking ball and then reacted to that 100 mile an hour fastball up at the letters. There's no shot. And it, he was late on that exact pitch, the pitch prior. And he made a great adjustment to be geared up for that pitch and let DeGrom beat him with that freak changeup that he probably would have beat you with anyways because everybody, even if you know it's coming, barely hits it. So, like, that was a weird thing too, right? Like, why are you, like, embellishing your approach there? You were selling out for the fastball, and that's good. You hit it. You did a good job. You did the right thing. But I just thought that was super weird where you're saying I was guessing breaking ball and just reacted to the fastball. There's no way. I will die on that hill. There's no way. You can ask any single major leaguer, minor leaguer, if they watch that at bat and see the pitch prior that Jazz Chisholm barely fouls off a fastball elevated and then the next pitch turns it around pole side right field upper deck and it's the same pitch 100 elevated and then they hear that he said he was looking for a breaking ball down and just reacted up they would just laugh but that's just jazz and maybe that's just all him playing mind games i don't know but i love it i love it it's it's funny and it's fun and he just is not afraid of anything he's not afraid of anybody and that's the best part about it he might just be totally joking with that he might have just wanted to kind of get into grom's head Maybe that's what it was. I mean, he knows he's going to see DeGrom again. Maybe he wants to light a fire under himself. I love it. Like, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I think it's hilarious. But I also, there's part of me where it's like, do you really want to poke the bear with Jacob DeGrom? But then on the other side of that, it's like, how much better could Jacob DeGrom possibly be after this last ball game? And he still loses. Like the Mets. Oh, man, the Mets. 
Why can they not score when Jacob DeGrom pitches? And I have my theory on that, by the way. And I'll, I'll go into that real quick before I preview the Braves series. So here's my theory on the Jacob DeGrom situation. I think that this has become something and it never really was anything. And by that, I mean in the beginning when we were talking about all of these Jacob DeGrom starts where he doesn't get run support. In the beginning of this whole thing, it, the narrative first started when the Mets were pretty darn bad, like pretty bad. And Dick, Jacob DeGrom was starting to become very, very good. And obviously, if you have a really good pitcher and a very bad offense, which that offense was really bad at times when Jacob DeGrom was first really emerging and then even three, four years ago, not a great offense. If that's the case, of course, he's not going to get a lot of run support. Of course, he's going to pitch a lot of gems and still get no decisions. That's totally going to be what happens. And that narrative was was fairly true there. But now we have a lot of different players here on the Mets at this point that we're looking at, and yet the narrative still continues. And I think for now, it's grown into something real. I think it was more of a coincidence then that just when Jacob deGrom started, there was a good chance that you were facing another team's ace, right? And that's not a coincidence, but if there's a good chance you're facing another team's ace or number two or whatever it may be, and your lineup's not that great, of course you're going to be stifled a little bit. Now, as the lineups have been better the last couple years and the trend has continued, I think it's because it's in the back of their heads. It's becoming like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I got traded to the Mets tomorrow, you don't think I'll be thinking about it when I stand up to the plate the day Jacob deGrom's pitching? Like, we better get this guy a run today. Like, that's going to be in the back of my mind. I feel like if anybody goes over to the Mets, they've heard this whole narrative before. So now it's in the back of your head. And having anything in the back of your head when you're playing baseball is already brutal enough. And now you have this almost self-fulfilling prophecy that all these guys are probably pressing to get Jacob deGrom runs when they really only need one run. And that's the wild thing. You really only need one or two runs and Jacob deGrom's going to win a lot of ball games. And they don't even get him that sometimes. But really, if they get three to four runs every single game, which is right around like right below league average, they would be doing great. And they don't even get Jacob deGrom that. And it's pretty wild to me. But I think that it's just turned into something more so than it was actually something real at first. Like, what are they saying? I, I hate Jacob deGrom. Let's just suck every time he pitches. It it's just not like feasible for it to be anything else other than a mental thing. And it's pretty wild to see how much it is blown up. I'm going to jump into a quick preview of this Marlins Brave series in just a moment here. Quickly, a reminder that this episode is also brought to you by our friends at Built Bar. We have so many flavors to choose from if you go to BuiltBar.com where you can just decide whatever dessert tasting bar you want to try. They've got caramel brownie cookies and cream, carrot cake. They've even got orange, coconut, mint brownie, peanut butter, you name it. They've got it. And all of them are low in calories, low in sugar, low in fat, high in protein, high in fiber, and great for a keto diet. They're covered in chocolate, easy to chew. And if you go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code LOCKED15, that's LOCKED15, you'll get 15% off your next order. That's LOCKED15 for 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. So let's wrap up here with a look at the Marlins' schedule ahead here, this four-game set against the Braves. And this is a big one today. As you listen to this, might be already where the game is underway or the game already happened, but this is a big one here in game one because it's advantage Marlins and probably the most likely ball game for them to win this series. And if it's advantage Marlins this this first ball game, you need to set the tone with a victory. And it's Sandy Alcantara versus Huascar Enoa. I think I said that right. And Huascar Enoa is not great. The Marlins knocked him around a little bit when they faced him last year. I don't think he's very good. It's advantage Marlins, but look at what happened last time I said that. So when it's this early in the season. I'm not even going to bother giving predictions when it's this early in the season. I'll circle back on the predictions in a few weeks 
once things are more uh, carved out and more clear because after that St. Louis series where I said the Marlins could potentially sweep and then they got swept, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not predicting anything. I'm just going to make some analysis, some takeaways from the numbers, provide some information, and I'll save those predictions for a little bit later for when things start to normalize a little bit. And that is not where we're at right now. So you got Sandy Alcantara versus Waskari Noah. That's advantage Marlins. Tomorrow, you've got Pablo Lopez versus Max Freed. And normally, I would say that's a push, right? Like Max Freed is great. Pablo Lopez has looked fantastic. But Max Freed has not been good this year. And especially in his last start against the Nationals, only went two innings, eight hits, and gave up five runs. And that's not like Max Freed at all. This guy has really put it together, was spectacular last year, and has one of the best curveballs that you'll see from a lefty in the game. He learned it from Sandy Koufax. Like, it's a special curveball. But for whatever reason, he's he really struggled to miss bats in his last ball game. The Vigo's not down or anything, but the fastball has just been getting teed off on. Opponents are hitting 385 against that heater from him. And as a lefty, you figure the Marlins can go righty heavy in that ball game and they'll probably have a pretty good chance to get to him a little bit. It will be a challenge, no doubt, to keep the Braves in check offensively. They have struggled, though, in their own respect with the bats. Marcelo Zuna has looked really bad. Uh, you've seen Ronald Acuna just get really hot, but we know Ozo can get hot anytime. We know that that whole lineup can get hot anytime. Christian Pache is hitting like 095 or whatever. I talk about him in Locked On and Moby Prospects a lot as a guy that I just don't think is near Major League ready and shouldn't be up. But for the Marlins, that's like having two pitchers in the lineup because he is not a much better hitter than Pablo Lopez right now, if at all. Um, so that's a bonus for the Marlins right now. And I think it's a big reason why the Braves are struggling. He is a ranger in center field, but that's it. He can't hit a lick. So the Marlins have a chance with the first two ball games here. I think the really tough one is going to be Nick Neidert versus Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton is still good, and he looks a lot healthier than he was last year with the nagging injuries. I like Neidert, and I was really impressed with his last start, but you have to think, Neidert in his second career start against this Braves lineup, that's a tall task. We'll see if he can keep him in check. I would take five innings, three runs from him in this outing just to even keep him in the ball game. I would take probably five innings, four runs from Neidert just because it's it's a tough one. It's a really tough one. Razor thin margin for error when you're pitching against a lineup like that and you're more of a fastball changeup guy. Depends on how the breaking ball looks. We'll see. But that would be a huge bonus if Nider puts together a good game. And then how exciting is the 15th going to be? And these are all probables. This is what I'm assuming it's going to look like. But how exciting. Trevor Rogers versus Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson's one of my favorite pitchers, young pitchers in the game. Just an elite fastball changeup combination. He tunnels as good as anybody in the game as well as anybody in the game and that is just a really fun matchup I can't wait to watch Rodgers versus Ian Anderson as two guys that are going to be wreaking havoc on NL East bats for a long time and I'm sure they will be squaring off a lot in the future so that will be a really fun series pitching wise I mean the Marlins do get a pretty good uh, pull here or a good draw, I guess, after that Mets situation because they don't have to go to Castano in this series. They don't have to have a bullpen game in the series. And instead, they just go Nick Neidert, who looked good in his last start. And it's not like he pitched against a slouch of an offense. It was the Cardinals. So this should be a 
fairly decent chance for the Marlins to at worst split here. But again, we can't predict series because clearly it is kind of hard to do that right now. But the Marlins are definitely in a decent spot against the Braves here. The good news is they go to San Francisco for three after this. And San Francisco is not that great. They're actually not good at all. Where they would presumably face like Logan Webb, Anthony Descofani, and wow, Disco Revenge game. And then Aaron Sanchez, who I thought was gone from the league a while ago. And then after that, they take on Baltimore, who, speaking of guys who I thought were gone from the league, this guy's never going to be gone from the league, but he's going to bounce around to all 30 teams, I think, before he retires, and Marlins are probably going to get Matt Harvey. So there's some favorable matchups ahead. The Giants come to town for three, Baltimore comes to town for two, and then the Marlins travel to the West Coast for four against the Giants again. It should be relatively favorable moving forward after this Brave series. So even if the Marlins can split two games to two in this series and then go on the road here and win at least you know, a couple games over 500 on that road trip, they'll be right back where they want to be. And again, that's a big reason why you can't panic or worry or be frustrated about, I mean, you can be frustrated. That's it. I'll give you frustration, but you can't panic about this team this early. They're really two blown saves in the ninth right now away from being right there at 500. And that's with all of the other struggles considered. This team will be okay. They will be right around 500. I guarantee it by the end of the month. I really think they'll be right around 500 at least by mid-May. And here I am making predictions again. So we'll see how that goes. But I do think that they can be flirting with 500 after that May 4th series against Arizona at home. So that'll do it for this episode. Marlins get going in about an hour and 10 minutes as I record this. A big one for the Marlins to set the tone in this series. Like I said, they just, worst case scenario, need to split. But before I wrap up, how crazy was that ending to the Braves-Phillies game last night? Baseball's got to figure it out. They've really got to figure it out. I mean, between the Marlins situation, which was a rule issue, they couldn't overturn it. And then this, where you could overturn it, it was actually like you are supposed to overturn it, and they still botched it. That was the craziest thing I've seen in a while, call-wise. It was objectively wrong, and everybody in America knew it except for the umpires in New York. How is that possible? Like, there was three different angles that all showed you the same thing. And you know how some angles sometimes are like, oh, wait, this looks different. I don't know if it's conclusive. All three angles told you the same story. And I just don't know what is going on with baseball here, but they have a lot to figure out in that regard, especially when it's on a national stage like that. Just a bad look for the game. Come on, get it together. You need to be able to figure that out. What's the point of replay if you're still not even going to get it right? Like, you might as well just flip a coin at that point instead of going to replay. Just say, okay, we don't know what it is. Let's do a jump ball and just figure out a baseball version of a jump ball because that's basically what they're doing right now with these janky replays. It's it's a shame. It's really a shame. But I wanted to wrap up with that because it was a little bit satisfying to see the Braves on the other side of it. It was kind of funny. So, I mean, at least there was that because there were so many Braves fans saying like, oh, well, you shouldn't have been in that situation anyway. Well, maybe the Braves shouldn't have given up a leadoff double to Alec Bohm. Eh, just is how it is, I guess. But anyways, a big series ahead. Marlins Braves. Marlins look for some revenge after getting knocked out, and that puts it lightly, against the Braves in the playoffs last season. As always, thank you for listening. I look forward to talking Marlins with you tomorrow. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, 
Everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.